If you would, grab your Bible and open with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. We are continuing to make our way through the gospel of Luke. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we're going to be on page 865. Or I suppose if your Bible is like mine, you're on page 1042, that's helpful. Probably not, but... If you've ever had a two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old in your home, you know that they ask lots of questions. And most of the questions begin with a W and end with an I. Why? 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 Questions are good. It's good that kids ask questions because that's how they learn. That's how adults learn. We learn by asking questions. And there are lots of different kinds of questions that as adults we typically ask. So for example, we can ask questions and do ask questions about identity. Those questions begin oftentimes when we're children like who are my parents or who will take care of me or whom can I trust. And then later as we mature we ask questions about identity as well but those questions are more like who am I? We also ask questions about meaning. What's the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of the universe? Does this world have any meaning? And if so, what is it? And then there are questions about destiny. These are sometimes the questions that we are tempted to put off because we don't want to deal with them. But sooner or later, all of us have to deal with questions about destiny. Like, what happens when I die? Or, is there an afterlife? And if so, do the things that I do in my life now impact my eternal destiny? Well, gratefully, the Bible answers for us all of these questions. But the question we are going to look at this morning is the most important of all questions. How do you like that setup? The most important question that you will ever ask. That question is this, who is Jesus? That is the most important question we can ask because how we answer that question, who is Jesus, will impact every other question and every other answer we give to every other question in the universe. In fact, the, the question, who is Jesus, is asked here in our text this morning by Jesus' followers who find themselves in the most unlikely of circumstances. So follow along as I read. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22 and read down through verse 26. The word of the Lord says this. One day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? 
And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water that they obey him? Father God, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes, as the psalmist wrote, to see wonderful things in your word, that you would incline our hearts towards your testimony and away from worthless gain. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. So Jesus and his followers, his disciples, are on a boat and they're in the Sea of Galilee. They're on the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee, for some historical background, or I guess geographical background is 682 feet below sea level and is surrounded on almost every side by high hills, the pseudo mountains. And the only kind of access not through the hills to the Sea of Galilee is primarily to the west. And since most of the weather comes from the west, the hills kind of act like a wind tunnel that force the winds and force the weather down onto the Sea of Galilee which then causes violent storms to, prop, to crop up often with very little warning. And this is likely what's happening to Jesus and his disciples here. Now to make matters worse, the boat that they are in is a typical fishing boat of this time. So don't think yacht or don't think cabin cruiser or the oasis of the seas. You need to think small aluminum fishing boat with a little sail on it. And so as the storm comes, there would be no protection from the waves as they relentlessly pounded away at this boat. Now there are several clues in the text itself that shows us just how severe this storm was. For example, look at verse 23. It says the boat that they were in was filling with water. So again, the picture is not just a a soft you know, sea breeze with some mist that's kind of wafting over the disciples' faces, right, exfoliating away the dead skin. No, these are waves that are relentlessly dumping gallon upon gallon of water into this small boat in which these men are gathered. As verse 23 tells us, they were in danger. And it's true. In fact, when Matthew records the same event in Matthew chapter 8, he adds that the boat was being swamped by the waves. That's the image we need to have in our minds. This boat is being swamped by the waves. So the sky is black, the sky is dark, the winds are howling, the waves are crashing in relentlessly over this boat as it's rocking back and forth. And the boat is filling with water. It is about to be swamped. So there's sufficient enough water already in the boat where it's about to go under. We also see from verse 24 that when they actually do wake Jesus up, they tell him that they are perishing. They believe that they're going to die from this storm. Now keep in mind that mo- many of Jesus' disciples are veteran fishermen. Like they've been on the water. They know how to navigate through the storms. And notice too that when Luke tells us in verse 24 that Jesus rebuked the wind, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. So if you add all of this together, you can see that this is a violent and deadly 
storm. And these disciples are thinking to themselves, likely, okay, we're not going to make it out of this alive. As they're frantically trying to find whatever they can to bail water out of the boat and frantically trying to navigate and frantically trying to turn the bow of the boat so that it goes into the oncoming waves so that they don't capsize. Now, at this point, we ought to ask the question, where is Jesus? Verse 23, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, you might be thinking, well, how in the world, how in the world can Jesus sleep? I mean, the boat is rocking enough to make a pirate seasick, right? And no telling how much water is in the back of the boat already. Jesus may have been partially submerged in the water for all we know. And yet he sleeps. How does Jesus sleep through all of this? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. It could be that Jesus, being fully God, but also fully man, was fully exhausted from a big day of ministry. It could be that he was so, as the Son of God, completely without sin and without anxiety and without fear, that he was able to completely rest knowing, as Psalm 4, 8 teaches us, that we, the Father makes us dwell in safety even as we sleep. Or it could be that all of this was a part of a test of faith for the disciples. But regardless of how or why Jesus is able to sleep through all of this, the important thing is what Jesus does when he is awakened. Look again at verse 24. They awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. Now, this is a miracle, for sure. Because the, the lake is calm. The lake is immediately calm. And it seems to me that this calm indicates not only that the water went calm, but that the winds stopped, and that likely maybe the sky even immediately cleared up. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, all of whom were probably white as a sheet, scared to death, maybe some leaning over the side of the boat for all we know, and he says to them, where is your faith? Which seems like an odd question to ask in a moment like that. Wait, faith? What? Wait a minute, Jesus. We were just about to drown. Like, you saw the storm. You saw the wind. You saw the waves. But now the disciples' fear of the wind and the waves is replaced by a new fear. Look at verse 25. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. Now they're not afraid of the storm. They're afraid of something more significant, someone more transcendent. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Like, who is this? We thought we knew who this was. Like, what just happened? Who who is this person among us? Which is absolutely the right question to ask. So what I want to do this morning is I want to work through this text by looking primarily at three themes that emerge from these verses. And these 
are going to be on the screen, so if you're taking notes, you can get these. The first is the brokenness of our world. The second is the identity and authority of Jesus. And third is the right question. So first, the brokenness of our world. So the effects of sin are seen throughout this text and seen in our own lives. I mean, keep in mind, Jesus and his disciples are living real time in the same sin-affected world that we find ourselves in today as well. We see them in a storm. We see them scared. We see them thinking that they're going to die. They're afraid. They're facing the, the, the natural environment that's hostile towards their own thriving. Genesis 3 makes it clear that when our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose rebellion to God over submission to God, they brought on themselves and the rest of the world the righteous, just judgment of God. Which meant they no longer experienced the unity and fullness of joy that they once experienced in God's presence. But what God does next is really interesting. After Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed creation. Which seems like the opposite thing that a loving creator God would do. But God curses creation. According to Romans 8.20, God subjected the world to futility in hope. He made the world seem futile. He, he, he presented some discord. He allowed some dysfunction to the world. God cursed the world so that every single day we would be reminded painfully of the horrible effects of sin. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well how horrible of God to do that. How horrible of God to curse the world that he had just created and said it was good. How horrible of God to subject the world to futility in hope. But what is the hope that Romans 8.20 says God subjected the world to futility in? He subjected the world to futility in hope. The hope is that we would turn. The hope is that we would see the dysfunction, that we would see the pain, that we would experience what it is like to live in a fallen and broken world and long for that which is restored, long for that which is not filled with pain, long for that for which we were created which is life in the presence of God. And isn't this what a good parent does? Think about your own parenting if you're a parent, for example. Your child chooses to disobey your loving instruction, and so what do you do as a parent? Like, Don't you remove privileges? Don't you take away some of the comforts of life? Why? Because you want them to suffer, right? No. Not because you want them to suffer, but because you know that their discomfort, having some of the comforts of life removed, having some of the privileges removed, that discomfort will be a repeated reminder that something's not right, that this is not how the relationship is meant to be. And you know that this discomfort will keep them from settling in too much in their rebellion, getting too comfortable in their rejection of your parental instruction. And so the goal is that their discomfort then would drive them to seek reconciliation. That's why God cursed the world. 
so that we wouldn't get too comfortable in this life lived apart from the full and glorious and perfect presence of God. So that we'd be reminded that this world as it now is, is not our true home. And that we would be driven to pursue reconciliation with the God that we have sinned against. And so we see this brokenness all around us. Outside of us in natural disasters and storms and floods and earthquakes and bee stings and sunburns. and, And here in our text we see it in a storm and wind. And waves that almost kill these disciples. We see the effects of sin out there. But we also see the effects of sin in here. Inside of ourselves. And we see it in the text. The disciples are afraid. They're scared. They're anxious. They're in danger. And we know these effects of sin as well. Fear. Fear of sickness, fear of financial ruin, fear that our kids will get hurt, fear of cancer or Alzheimer's, fear of divorce or singleness or infertility or all of the what-ifs that rob us of sleep. The relational discord between people that we experience, the suffering that we experience, the futility that we experience when we, we feel like I didn't get as much done as I thought I should today or My kids didn't act the way I thought they should today, or I'm disappointed with not even living up to my own standard today. And then there's another kind of fear, and that kind of fear, I think, is what the disciples are manifesting or showing here in the text, and that's the fear of thinking that Jesus doesn't care. It's more clear in Mark chapter 4. So Mark, in Mark 4, Mark recounts the same event, the same storm, and Jesus caught the calming of the storm. But Mark adds in these words of the disciples. When they wake up Jesus, their words to him are, don't you care that we are perishing? Don't you care that we are about to die? Because it seems like you don't. Like If you really cared about us, we wouldn't be in the storm in the first place. You wouldn't have sent us off. And you certainly would not have fallen asleep. And you certainly would have woken up as soon as the waves started to come and the wind started to howl. Why aren't you helping us? And I wonder this morning, have you ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. If Jesus truly cared for me, he would not allow me to suffer. You fill in the blank. He would not allow me to experience the storm of you fill in the blank. Or if Jesus truly cared, he would stop my storm. He wouldn't allow the storm to continue to rage. You see the words of Jesus' disciples in Mark 4.38, don't you care, sound so abrasive, don't they? Of course Jesus cares. But they sound abrasive because that's not our storm. We're not in the boat with the water crashing over us. But we're tempted to ask the same question in the midst of our storm. 
And the answer is the same. Jesus cares. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is working even this storm for the eternal good of these disciples. So when we are tempted to ask the question, Jesus, don't you care? We should see the same answer that the disciples saw here. Yes, yes, Jesus does care. And for all who are called by God, for all who love him, he is working even our darkest storms and our fiercest storms for his eternal purposes and our eternal good. And that's really important to know. If you're in a storm right now, that for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, he is working even this storm, even the darkness of this storm, the severity of this storm, he is working this for his eternal glory and your eternal good, even when you don't see how. Even when none of the indicators on the dashboard of of your life seem to point in that direction, we can be confident based on the authority of God's word and his promises to us that even your storm is being worked by God for your good and his glory. Now, it may not be your comfort. It may not be your happiness at the moment. But it will result in greater trust in him. It will result in in greater satisfaction in him. It will result in greater joy in his salvation. It will result in greater glory the moment when you see Jesus face to face and you say it was worth it. So this is really important when we are in the midst of the storm and this is really important if you're not in the midst of a storm right now because you will experience a storm. And for many of us in this room, our fiercest storm probably is on the road ahead, not on the road behind us. Which is why it is so important to build the infrastructure, to build the foundation now where we can say with confidence that it is well with our soul. When peace like a river attends our way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever our lot, the word of God has taught us to say, it is well with our soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance take hold that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our soul. So this narrative shows us that in the cold reality of living in a fallen and broken world, we experience sorrow. But against the backdrop of our sorrow, against the backdrop of the storms of life, this text also paints in vivid color our second theme, which is the identity and the authority of Jesus. So in the ancient world, storms at sea were not necessarily believed to be caused by atmospheric conditions. They were believed to be caused by the spiritual forces that could not be tamed, could not be controlled. And so people, if you read accounts of people in the ancient world, the, the sea was a scary place. It was a place of the unknown. It was a place that was outside their control. They didn't know why storms came. They didn't know how. You see this, in fact, in Jonah. Because when the storm comes, the sailors say to Jonah, hey, what gods have you sinned against? What have you done to the gods to bring about a storm like this? 
they recognize that there's something significant, something spiritual about the storm. I think this is why we see in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 that when John is recording for us the words of Christ about what the new heaven and the new earth will be like, what the new restored creation will be like, Revelation 21 says, and the sea will be no more. I don't think that that means that there won't be bodies of water. I think it means that our fear will be gone. The uncertainty and the unrest and the anxiety of the unknown will be gone and it will be replaced with perfect peace. It will be replaced with calm. And this is important because if culturally speaking the sea was a place where the dark forces of the world held their power, the Bible speaks contrary to that or into that narrative the Bible speaks and says that God demonstrates his greater power even over the sea. So for example, and you can see this in lots of different psalms, Psalm 65 says this, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, and the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Right, Even the furthest seas, you are the hope, you are sovereign. The one who by his strength established mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves tumult of the people so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So the seas were dark and scary, but the psalmist is clear. The creator God is in complete control even over the sea. And the son of God rises. We don't know, like every picture that's been made has Jesus with his arms outstretched. We don't know. The Gospels say that he arose in Luke, or in uh, Mark. But what he does next is significant. He wakes up and against the awesome power of the raging winds and the crashing waves, he brings immediate calm. Now this is more than just Jesus saving the disciples from bodily harm. And this is more than giving his disciples what they want. No, Jesus is revealing his identity and his authority and his power, which is why the disciples' response is dead on. Who is this that the winds and the waves obey him? Now, before we get too detailed into their response, that's really point number three, let me point out something else that's significant. How did Jesus calm the storm? He spoke. Yeah, he spoke. He rebuked the wind and the waves. One of the other gospel gospels, I don't remember which one, it's probably, well, it's Matthew, Mark, or John, right? <laughs> we'll say that. <laughs> it says he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, and said, to the waves, peace be still. How did God create all things in the beginning? He spoke them into existence. Genesis tells us, God said, let there be light. God said, let dry land appear. God said, and it was so. 
the triune God spoke the world into existence. By his word, all things came to be. But if we dial the microscope in just a little bit more, John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus Christ is the member of the Trinity through whom God the Father created all things. So Jesus is the word of God. Through Jesus, the word, all things came into existence. And so the same voice that spoke to the wind and the sea was the same voice that spoke them into existence. And they obeyed. What is it, Moana or one of the Disney movies that talks about? No, it's Frozen, right? It's uh, Olaf says that water has memory. Water doesn't have memory. Water can't hear, right? But if water, follow me for a minute. I know it's profound, right? You heard it here, folks. But if water could hear, if water could hear, it would say, oh, yeah, I know that voice. Peace be still. Oh, that's the same voice that created me. That's the same voice that called me into existence. And he stopped the chaos and brought the calm. And the word of God does the same thing today. The word of God, which is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, does the very same work Today, it speaks into our storm, and it doesn't always calm our storm, it doesn't always fix our storm, but it speaks into the soul, it speaks into our heart, so that even in the midst of the storms of life and the adversity that we encounter, no matter how deep and how dark, we can say, it is well with my soul, I have peace by calming the storm and by doing so with the power of his word, Jesus is revealing his deity, that he is God. He is revealing his power that is greater than any other power. Which leads us then to our last theme this morning, which is the right question. So although the the calming of the storm is huge, I think the center of gravity, the focal point of this event is actually verse 25. Because in verse 25, this goes from simply a miraculous miracle that impacts the the physical created world and it becomes something transcendent because Jesus says to them, where is your They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So don't do this now. Don't do this now. But if you Google pictures of Jesus calming the storm, you see all kinds of things, and some of it's really just silliness. But one of the few things you will see is in a picture of Jesus calming the storm, actually a picture of the water being calm. Like, there are very few. I found one or two yesterday looking. There were very few pictures made of Jesus after he's calmed the storm, but none of those pictures demonstrate the response of the disciples here. And I'm sure probably one exists somewhere, but the picture I want to see is the calm water 
But the turbulence in the lives and in the eyes and in the hearts of Jesus' disciples as they're trying to wrestle and come to grips with, okay, who is this? This is not just a teacher. This is not just a rabbi. This is not just a moral man. This is God. And I think that's the central point of this text. Let me put it another way. Brothers and sisters, contrary to what you may have been taught in Sunday school as a child, the main point of Jesus calming the storm is not, Jesus will fix your problems if you just believe. The main point of Jesus calming the storm is to expose where we're putting our faith, thus Jesus' question, where is your faith, and the main point of Jesus calming the storm is to make us ask, who is Jesus? Who is he? And my guess is, had Jesus asked this question, where is your faith, when they were on dry land, an hour before the storm, nothing has happened, their bellies are full of good food, they're safe from the Roman occupying force, he maybe would have gotten a very different answer. But hear this, Jesus loves them enough. Jesus is more concerned about their character than their comfort enough that he sends them into the storm to bring them to the place where it is exposed and clear that which they are trusting in. And friends, just like Jesus sent his disciples into the storm, God will send us into storms that the real object of our faith would be revealed. That we might be able to see what we are trusting in, who we are trusting in. So you just follow that backwards. What are you afraid of? What are you fearful about? If you can answer that question, the real question, the root, the heart matter, you can oftentimes find that which your faith is in. I stay up at night, I'm just worried about finances. What if I can't pay all the bills? Or what if I lose my job? Or what if a child gets sick and the medical bills mount? Or what if we have to foreclose on our house? Or what if this happens? Okay. Maybe your faith is actually not in God, but maybe your faith is in money possessions, financial security. Okay, now we can begin to work together. We can begin to talk together. We can begin to meet together and open the word together and pray together and counsel together. And you see how that works. And these disciples had seen Jesus' miracles. They'd heard his teaching. They acknowledged his uniqueness. But in the middle of the storm of life, they questioned his power. They questioned his care. Thus, They said to Jesus, as Mark records, don't you care that we're drowning? And friends, if comfort is our God, if comfort is our idol, if comfort is our ultimate goal in life, then we will never learn this lesson. Because, as I said, God cares more about our character than our comfort. And he will allow us or sometimes send us into storms, into situations that are hard and, yes, even painful at times. So that he might refine us and strengthen us and remove the idols after he kind of draws those to the surface. 
so that we would trust him more, so that we would find more joy in him than comfort or earthly pleasure, or to cause us to be more ready for the day when we see him face to face. And brothers and sisters, we will experience storms. You know that because you've experienced storms. Some of you are in the midst of storms right now. And for some in this room, likely the worst storm you could imagine may happen to you. And in that moment, what's going to be drawn to the surface is this question, where is your faith? It's going to be made clear. And now is the time to build the spiritual muscles, to build the spiritual infrastructure, the foundation that says that God is good, that God's promises to me are sure, that even when I can't see him, he is there, that he is working all things, all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He will not abandon us. That not for a moment will he forsake us. And that question is built then on the reality of who Jesus is. Which is why it's so important that we wrestle with and come to terms with this question. Who is Jesus? So in Peter chapter, or in Peter chapter, in Luke chapter 9, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in Acts chapter 9, Paul boldly proclaims to naysayers and doubters that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mary Magdalene, that we just talked about a couple of weeks ago, experienced the healing that comes through the supernatural ministry of Jesus as she was healed of seven demons. And the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7 that anointed Jesus experienced the full forgiveness of sin and the overwhelming flood of love that flooded into her heart through the work of Jesus. Like the paralytic in Luke chapter 5 who experienced the forgiveness and salvation of God firsthand. Then there's the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23 who rightly knew that Jesus was the innocent king of the Jews and somehow establishing his kingdom and said, hey, I want to be a part. I believe in you. And the Roman centurion who stood at the foot of the cross who exclaimed, truly this man was the son of God. So who is Jesus? And the implications for how you answer that question will not only impact eternity, but they will impact your life now. Because if Jesus truly is the Son of God, who is ruling and reigning, the Savior of the world, then that has implications for our life now. He is the Son of God sent from heaven to earth who lived without sin, who willingly died a substitutionary death on the cross for the sin of all who believe, who rose again from the dead, victorious over the grave, that all who trust and believe in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin will be made new, will be adopted, will be transformed. You see, it's tempting to think, well, if I had been on the boat, if I had seen Jesus actually calm the waves and the storm, 
my faith would be so much stronger. Like, I would find it so much easier to believe if I'd actually been there. But friends, remember all the amazing miracles that Jesus did throughout his ministry and the crowds flocked to Jesus, like hundreds if not thousands of people that flocked to Jesus to hear him teach and to see the miracles. And yet, as soon as his teaching turned direct and convincing, almost all of them turned away and stopped following Jesus. These were ones that saw what Jesus had done with their own eyes. Yet according to John chapter 6, verse 66, when Jesus began to teach more directly and more convictingly, they're like, forget it, I'm out of here. They saw with their eyes, but they failed to hear with their heart. Which is why, as we've seen already in the book of Luke, Jesus' earthly ministry is directed and aimed at this common challenge. Which is, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so for the Christian, hearing is always more important than seeing. At least now. There's coming a day when our faith will be made sight. This is why the disciples' question is the right question. They didn't ask how, as in, how would you do that? Or why? Hey, why did you send us out here in the first place? Or why did you go to sleep? Or why did you allow us to go through this storm? They asked who. Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So friends, who is Jesus? And do you love him? Not just know him, not just believe in him, do you love him? Even amid the storms of life. Even when he appears distant or asleep. Do you trust in his promises? At the end of World War II, when the Allied troops were sweeping into Germany to liberate the people there, they entered a house in Cologne, Germany, and found written on the basement walls this text. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when feeling it not. I believe in God even when God is silent. It is well with my soul, right? Even amid the storms and the trials of life. Horatio Spafford wrote that song, It Is Well, as he was passing from North America to Europe on a ship, passing by the place where just a couple of weeks prior, his wife and two daughters were drowned in the sea. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance take hold that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, even if he leads through storms, even if he doesn't immediately calm the wind and the waves, even if he appears, seems to us, from our limited vantage point to be sleeping, 
And he has promised to deliver each and every one of his children, all who repent and believe, safely to that golden shore. That's who Jesus is. Would you stand with me? Let's pray.